0: I think there's a lot of room to continue to grow in real estate investing. I think the forms of investment are changing and that's going to help make it more and more accessible. I think platforms like good eggs are helping to democratize access you're
1: listening to the life and money show a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them and now here are your hosts, annie dickerson and julie lamb hey hey everyone annie dickerson here together with the fabulous julie lamb julie how are you today I'm doing fantastic. Finally
2: back home after being on the road for 8 months and just excited to be home. It's funny when we first started this podcast to a little over 2 years ago, we were just getting into the pandemic and then we were in lockdown for like ever. Over that time I was just like itching to like get out and go see the world and travel and everything. I think I got the bug out. So it's nice to finally be home and back into our routines and just the comforts of our own bed and things like that. It's like, oh my gosh, it's been-
1: Long, long, eight yeah. Because yeah. I know so many of our listeners probably aspire to an epic trip mm-hmm. like that, where they can be on the road with their family and be working and slow travel. And so, yeah. share maybe like some of the top moments or tips that you have for people who may want to step into something like this. Yeah. Oh gosh, definitely plan
2: ahead. Planning pays dividends because it's going to be. Heavy while you're on the road, have it all mapped out, all the Airbnbs reserved, start a spreadsheet, whatever you need to do, check the weather, all these kinds of things. I mean, that's what I did. I put so much effort and time into the research and the planning ahead of time so that when we were on the road, it was a great experience so that we knew exactly what the temperature was going to be like and exactly the types of activities we could do and couldn't do and all of that kind of stuff. But it was tough because we're still in COVID, which I didn't expect to be. A lot of things were closed or you needed like a lot of the national parks now you need to have reservations for. So depending on when you're setting out to do this, definitely look into all, again, the planning will go a long way, right? Look into, do you need a reservation? Do you not? Because the last thing you want, which happened to us in a couple of places, is you get there and then it's like, oh, you needed to have a reservation and reservations are booked and they open up in five days or whatever. And then you're gone oh, from that place if you're no. only there for a week, right? So like I said, the planning piece like took us a long way, but- we got to see so much. I think one pro tip would be the sweet spot for us anyway was really about two weeks. So a week in one place. Oh my gosh. To move every week was like a lot. There were some places where we stayed for a night or three days and that was manageable because you knew it was just a night or three days. But when you're there a week, just about get comfortable with the area and get unpacked and everything. And then you got to pack up and leave. So either do short stints, like a day, two days, something like that, or do longer two weeks is what we felt like was just the amount of time to like explore and get to know an area and then get up and move on to the next spot. So, Yeah. Hopefully that so helps. Cool. And I
1: can't believe you, you. Some that planning. eight months yeah. seems like it went by in a flash. I'm it sure for you. Was...
2: No, it flew by so quickly. I mean, I don't even know what year we're in anymore.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I am still talking about
2: 2020, 2021. It's like, oh shoot, we're in 2022. <laughs> yeah. But it went by really quickly. Tons of fun, but definitely plan ahead and that'll serve you really well when you hop on the road. So yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it's so inspirational to watch you and your family go having talked about this trip and then actually pull the trigger and go on this trip. And to see you now on the yeah. flip side, having gone to all these incredible places, truly living out, not just talking about, but living out life by design and being so intentional and creating such incredible memories for your kids and your whole family and traditions that you probably didn't have before you set out on this epic (laughs) trip and so it's just absolutely an inspiration and talking about that planning piece right having spending so much time being intentional and planning but also having Mm -hmm. that flexibility to be able to flex Mm -hmm. as needed i think that parallels in many ways the journey of our guest today, John Stein. He's the founder and chairman of Betterment. For those of you who may not have heard of Betterment before, get out your phone right now and go (laughs) Google Betterment, sign up. It's one of the first robo-advisors and it just made it really easy for people to get involved with investing and to made it very accessible for people who may not have been involved with wealth management or finances to really get started investing to grow their wealth and so john tells this story about how he didn't set out to create this app But he got in there and he really tried to figure out what was going on, where were the shortfalls of the industry as it currently stood, and where were the opportunities for him to come in and bring his strengths and his viewpoint and really to contribute. And I think the end result with what he's created through Betterment, it has changed in in an entire industry. Yeah. It's so funny
2: because my oldest daughter now is expressing a lot of interest in entrepreneurship. And so we talk about it all the time now. And it's just interesting to uh, one of the things that that we were talking about yesterday was that she wants to start a business. And I told her that when you start a business, usually you have to be able to identify some kind of a hole in the business or something that isn't working that maybe you've tried and you identify problems and you create a business that start, tries to solve those problems. And when we talked with John today in our conversation, it was interesting because he did what he said he didn't want to do after he got out of college. And But it was through that experience, right? Because let's say he just got out of college and he just wanted to go start a business, but he didn't know the holes, right? And he didn't see the problems. And it was through his experience of doing what he didn't want to do and going and working for a company that he wasn't necessarily super excited about and that he realized and he was able to see. First Like what are the problems that he's experiencing or that he's seeing in the industry and how does he disrupt that and how does he change that? And so we talked a lot about that in the beginning and it was also cool at the end when we talked a little bit about culture and he had said that culture is a thing that was really important to him as he was building Betterment over the years and we got to chat a little bit about that. And uh, just like us at Good Egg, culture is so important to us and we spend a lot of time and effort creating happiness within. our world, which is what he had talked about as well, being intentional about pursuing happiness within the company and within the communities. And so it's just such a fun conversation with somebody whose, I think, mission, vision, values, and all those kinds of things are so much in alignment with us at Good Egg. It was a fun conversation.
1: Indeed. And it was also fun hearing John's perspectives on real estate. He comes from a background in the equities markets, but he is getting into real estate more and more. And it was really interesting to hear his thoughts about the growth of investing in real estate Uh and the future and what's down the road. And so for all of our listeners who might be new to the world of investing in real estate, a great place to start is to get a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good, and we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestmentscom book. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with John Stein. John, welcome to the show. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you, Annie.
1: Oh, it's such an honor to have you on the show. I can't wait to dig into your story with our listeners here. Now, John, before we get into the story of how you founded Betterment and how you launched the company at TechCrunch in 2008 of all times, and how Betterment has now grown into the largest independent financial advisor in the U.S. with over $18 billion in assets under management as of this recording... I want to start a little earlier in your life. I'm curious, had you always been interested in finances and money and business, even as a kid?
0: I probably wasn't super interested in investing as a kid. I remember (laughs) my grandparents telling me when I was young, maybe 10 that they'd get me a share of Disney stock for Christmas the next year. And I remember thinking that was a really cool thing and following it in the newspaper every now and again, I'd sort of check in on it to see how it was doing. I never did get the stock. (laughs) It never (laughs) happened. But it did kind of give me some interest in like, well, what is a stock and what are markets? I would have done very well had they actually bought me that stock. I wish they had. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably got the original Nintendo Entertainment System instead. Yeah. And that was fun too. Betterment has $35 billion in assets under management as of this recording. What? Oh um, my goodness. So I was I mean, way I off. Night, but
2: <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. And just to be clear, everyone that's listening, that's a B as in billion. That is wow. Wow. So crazy. Anyway,
1: okay, let's fast forward the story. Okay, so you maybe had a little dabbling with stocks as a kid, maybe not so much. At what point did you start to get interested in this whole world? And I know you had an interest in economics and psychology. How did it all come together for you?
0: Well, Annie, you and Julie like to talk about how both of you just kind of like, fell into real estate along the way. You almost like sort of happened upon it. And I feel like for me, I just fell into finance. I don't think I was ever drawn, like, oh, I want to be a finance person. I mean, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Both my parents were city planners. There's not a lot, honestly, there's just not a ton of finance folks down in Dallas. You know, like New York City is like maybe San Francisco, like are the capitals of this. And like, it always felt like this foreign, faraway thing. I went to... College at Harvard. I was lucky to get to go to my dream school and I went there thinking I'd be a journalist. I was, I edited the high school paper when I was in high school. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I got there and I found out I didn't like journalism. And then I thought pre-med for a while. And I did a post pre-med year. And I found out I didn't like blood and I didn't want to work in the bio labs. And so like <laughs> I majored in economics as an undergrad. I did a lot of psychology work too. And the union of those two disciplines was always fascinating to this day. And really my whole life's work is about like the overlap or the lack of overlap between economics and psychology, right? So economics is the study of like how societies work and how countries set budgets and make money and and compete globally. And psychology is the kind of like micro side of that, like how people think and how people make decisions. And there's often, there's this field behavioral economics, which is about how the way people work doesn't necessarily fit into the economic models or the traditional economic models. It's hard to model human behavior. And part of that's because we humans just make a lot of mistakes about things. Like we just like we're very short sighted. It's hard for us to plan long term. We're not good at it. And our happiness is hard to model with a classic economic utility function. There's like a lot of inputs to our happiness that are just like, don't fit into that model. And so I was interested in this like idea of like, how do we help people make better decisions so they can live better lives? How do we make people happier? And no one was recruiting for that coming out of college. That's not like a big growth industry with like recruiting on college campuses, but people were recruiting for financial services. And I think out of the economics majors in my graduating class, and by the way, when I was an undergrad at Harvard, economics was the biggest major, I think it was a graduating class of 1600, something like 600 of them, I'm probably off by a bit, but like a lot of them were economics majors. And of those, most of them are going to the big investment banks, the big investment firms or the big consulting firms, usually they are working for the big banks. (laughs) So like almost everyone I knew in my major was going to work on Wall Street in some form. And I remember just at that time being almost disappointed in everyone, like in this sort of arrogant, like I didn't know any better. Like I didn't have like a better idea of what to do. And just like, I just wanted purpose. I wanted some like meaning or reason for the thing that I was going to do. And just going to help banks make more money didn't feel very purposeful. However, a year out of college and without like Mm -hmm. needing to pay the rent, and I was like, I guess I'll go help big banks make more money, you know?
1: (laughs) Funny how that (laughs) happens. Yeah.
0: And then I learned a bit about finance there. I I remember thinking at the time that it was like I'd been led in to see like how this industry worked, but I was. Really, an outsider. Like, I was really there to ultimately disrupt it or to change it. Like, I really had that feeling the whole time. Like, I was just learning it to change it. And I wanted to start it. I hit on the idea I wanted to start a business at some point. And I just kind of kept picking away at different ideas. I wasn't sure if it would be a bank or a, I figured it had to be in financial services because that's where I was getting experience as a consultant. I was working for all the big banks and learning about how they made products and how a balance sheet worked, what customers wanted from financial products. And so I thought, well, I know enough here that I can like, get funded, that people will allow me to start a business. And there's also a lot of opportunity to make these products better. And I got the name Betterment. It was just this idea. It came from my probably like city planning parent roots of like betterment of society, betterment of this neighborhood. And it was about making things better. And then the product kind of came out of a bunch of conversations with friends who would say, hey, what should I do with my money? Like, how should I invest? What would you recommend I do? And I was a CFA. I was working in finance. So people just kind of figured I might have good advice. And I'd give them advice and they'd say, Okay, but can you just do it?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't yep. want to learn it. There. Right, that's always the thing. I don't want to learn it. Can you just do it for me?
0: <laughs> yeah, yep. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So then we started doing that, and my original business plan for Batterman. I realize I'm going on and on, but y'all are, are smiling and nodding, so I'll continue.
2: Yeah. No, go <laughs> for it. I'm. Um, this is such a great story.
0: I started down that path of just trying to build. This thing that would help people do the right thing with their money, and the original business plan was I was the only employee. We were going to get to like a hundred million in assets and it was going to be a tiny kind of lifestyle business. I'm like embarrassed to say this now, you know, it's like, <laughs> I think it's telling though, right? Of like, that's where my head was. It's like, well, this would be a fun little thing. And I started coding. I had to teach myself to code, to build the website. And my roommate, Sean Owen, he was a Google engineer at the time. And fortunately, he gave me some books and was like, here, you know, build it in this language. He told me to build it in Flash. Which was like a thing in two thousand seven eight. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs>
0: the iPhone killed it, and we had to rebuild the whole website. Uh, <laughs> but but we—it was—it was bad code anyway. But I built the first website, and I started showing it to friends. And my roommate Sean was helping me, and then I met Eli, who was a securities lawyer, and I was getting sick of dealing with what, how are we going to get regulated? Are we going to be a mutual fund or a bank and everything? And like, then I, so I brought him in as a co-founder and then there was all this work to do to process bank requests and this and that. So I brought in Anthony, my chief product office, they just kept hiring people. And before you know it, we <laughs> hire more people and raise more money and hire more people. <laughs> yeah. It took us a year. You guys will relate to this. It took us a year to get to $10 million under management. So in 2010, May of 2010, we launched. And a year later we had 10 million in assets, which seemed to me at the time like an impossible amount of money. And back then, I couldn't believe all these crazy people who were sending us their money. I was like, Well, it's on the internet. What are you doing? <laughs> yep. <If> there weren't <laughs> there was no Venmo. There was no fintech category. It wasn't a thing people yeah. did. And then it took us six months to get to 20 million, and then another three months to get to 30 million, and another two months to get to 40 million. It just kind of kept growing faster and faster and really took off. Yeah, today, 35 billion. I think we grew 50% last year from maybe 22 the year before. And it's continued to grow strongly. And today, Betterment is mainly known as a consumer product that helps you manage your money. We invest in stocks and bonds and do it in a smart, tax efficient way. But we also, we have a 401k product that we sell to employers. That's a great fast-growing product. Mm -hmm. And we have an advisor product where we work with independent RAs. So your investment advisor, if you have one, might use the Betterment platform to manage your money. That's a little bit of the Betterment story.
1: I want to go back to something you said earlier, because this resonates so much with me and my story. I started out my career as a teacher. I decided almost like you did. It's almost like a secret agent, right? You go in not planning to be a teacher for life. Same for you, not planning on helping banks get richer for the rest of your life, but really going in and trying to glean, how does the system work? currently? Like what are the holes in the system and where can I bring my strengths and my skill sets to the table to really improve? So for me, I got in the classroom and I realized, wow, we need more games. We need more interactivity. And then I went on to game design, creating educational games. For you, when you got in there in the financial industry, what were some of those things that you learned that maybe were a little broken in the system?
0: I saw such bad behaviors and I don't think that's because most people who work in big financial services are bad people. I think they're good people. I mean, a lot of my best friends, the parents in my community, like everyone, like there's lots of good people who work in almost any big institution out there. But I saw things like one bank and I don't want to give too many details. We were working for a bank and we were trying to study their competition And we realized one of their competitor banks was making so much money, 80% of their money off of fees, whereas the average bank in that region was making 50% of their money off of fees. And so we did a little bit of a double click to see what was going on, how are they doing it? And they were opening branches in low-income neighborhoods and selling free checking accounts at a much higher rate than any other bank. And these free checking accounts had a $40 overdraft fee. average customer was paying like... Four of these a month. It was atrocious. You know, it was just awful. And you see things like that in a checking account, which is supposed to be a safe product. And it just really like made my stomach churn. Like you think, I would think to be skeptical of a credit card offer, right? Like you got to be careful with debt and like evaluate things carefully, but you think, oh, free checking, like that's a regulated product. That's gonna be okay. And to sort of take advantage of people in that way was really bad. I think another example was in on the sort of investment side. Back in that, in the time I was consulting, there was a lot of interest in Forex trading, right? There were all these like Forex trading shops. And again, I don't want to get too specific, but these firms, we looked at some of them and had been working with some of them. And like the average deposit per customer at one of these firms was $2,000. And the average profit per customer that the firm would take was $2,000. They literally were just taking people's money. And the way that they were Light doing it it was mm-hmm. because people would deposit that amount. And then they'd give them 50 to one or hundred to one leverage. And the market would move a little bit. And the market there in Forex would just kind of tick back and forth. And it would tick just enough to wipe out their account. And then it would like tick back the other way. And the firm would never pass the trades on. They would carry the opposite side of everyone's trades on their balance sheet. So that just felt like a really gross business. And by the way, those practices are not all in the past. We see a lot of those kinds of things going on and say, like, again, I think there's a lot of great, really exciting things happening in crypto and Web3. Like I personally am invested in some of those projects because I think they're really exciting and inspirational. There's a lot of bad things happening too like there's a lot of like really fraudy kind of nasty stuff out there so picking and choosing who you invest with and why and how like and understanding it i think remains as important as ever
1: oh yeah and as you were learning about these things these almost predatory practices right and and on the flip side right so you have the companies doing these maybe not so savory things. And then on the consumer side, right, making sure that they were empowered to understand really what's going on behind the scenes. So as you were seeing these two different sides, how did you come up with, okay, well, this is how I want to contribute. And this is the idea that I have. Because prior to Betterment, this whole fintech space didn't even really exist. You had to really create that. And so how did you really take your experiences and think, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to bridge the gap between these two worlds.
0: That's very flattering. That's also usually my line. I like to say hey, it didn't exist before. <laughs> so I appreciate you saying that. Like you, I love to learn, right? Like I love to like get in and explore things and figure out how they work and tinker and I think at that time in my early career, I viewed at like everything was just a learning opportunity. I like write everything down. I kept folders. I just recently had to go through and like have files and files from back then of case studies that I'd printed out and all the web pages of every financial website. And I was just studying and pouring over all of that stuff. And Building the financial models for banks. Like you just learn a lot. You get a lot of skills out of like pouring over one balance sheet after another and kind of seeing how these things work and discovering the patterns. And then I looked at I earned my CFA. I saw that as just an opportunity to take a test and earn an accreditation. It's like getting a superpower. I got my series seven and my 24 and my 60. You're racking them up. (laughs) Yeah, I loved it, right? You know, like I think I've always taken tests because it feels like an achievement. It's almost this kind of like back to that Nintendo that I was talking about at the beginning. It's kind of like (laughs) gaming. It's easy in a sense to kind of like those things, like the criteria are well-defined. And so you can go and do it and you get enough. And hopefully you kind of have an insight along the way. I think the, the core insight for me was that for most people, investing was just too complicated. And if I could make it easy, and I mean really easy, that would be a big breakthrough. So rather than saying, hey, it's easy, you should do these five things. And these are simple rules to follow, which is kind of what you talk to all, any good financial advisor will kind of tell you similar things, right? But then doing it. And I found that it was inaccessible to most people to go out and do those things. So, like, you should invest regularly. You should have an auto deposit. Like, okay. Like, most brokerage sites traditionally, and even to this day, frankly, don't make that that easy. I have an institutional account that I, for a charity that I work with, that I have to manage on one of like the big brokerage sites. There's no auto deposit function. There's trading, is still like this awful multi screen process where, like, we I have to, like, remember the ticker and how many shares do I have. And it's just like, I can't believe how, dumb a lot of these interfaces are when it comes to like human behavior and how people actually work and think. So at Betterment, I knew on day one, the company I wanted to build, it's going to be built almost like the interface, like ING Direct, which you may not remember a brand, but it was just this oh, yeah. very well mm-hmm. cool online savings account. Yeah. And I said, it's got to be, here's how much you want to deposit. And then it's going to show you what you're going to be invested in and how your money will grow over time. And we built this allocation graph and it was the first of its kind because i thought how are you supposed to invest if you don't know how your money is going to grow like how do you know <laughs> like that's just the obvious thing you have to do and like no other site was showing people that so it had to be really easy I had to have auto deposit that's the thing i mentioned it had to diversify for you automatically it had to be tax efficient take care of like your taxes for you and doing your taxes but making sure that you were selling the right lots and tax loss harvesting and asset location and all those fancy words that people like they should be doing, but we just do it for you. And I think we've continued to build more sophistication into the platform. In some ways, I feel like as we've done that, we've made it more complicated. That's kind of a bummer to me that you lose simplicity a bit over time, but every once in a while we go back and we refresh and we sort of, let's get rid of some stuff. Like let's get rid of some features that people aren't using and continue to make this as simple as we possibly can. Cause that's ultimately how you have the biggest reach is making it easy.
1: What I love about the approach you're describing is like it sounds like so many of these other banks and institutions went into it from a bottom line standpoint. Like how can we make more money on these transactions? Going at from that perspective whereas you came in from the other door and you were like, "Okay, well, what do people really need? Where are they? Where are they stuck? How can I make something that's simple for them to understand, simple for them to use, makes it a no-brainer? They don't have to get technical. And I get the feeling that Betterment is really on your side. And that seems like the the product and the business that you built. Now I want our listeners to be sure to hear the story of how you launched at TechCrunch, because that's a big deal. I know you've told this story on some other podcasts, but would you share with us? Cause it sounds like such a harrowing time. It was <laughs> you had to launch right then. And then you got your co-founders there in the audience taking calls and taking emails. Tell us a little bit about that experience.
0: I like to describe that day as the most stressful day of my life (laughs) and maybe ever save for like the births of my children, right? Which were were many years later, which were like wonderful days in their own, but like, and in a way similar is like the birth of this company, which my wife refers to as our first child, you know, (laughs) I was up all night the night before we had to present and I know that because I had a BlackBerry and I was typing notes and it would timestamp the notes. And I looked in the morning and like every 30 minutes, there was another new entry. I was like, what was uh, I doing? Why did I wake up so many times? <laughs> and I tried very hard to memorize my entire talk. I practiced it for days beforehand. And then I was making all these last minute edits and word choice changes And I just wanted it to be perfect. You know how you just like, when you want something, you care so much about something and it has to be right. And it like, it doesn't matter how much time you spend on it. That was that presentation. And of course, all of that focus and attention didn't serve, (laughs) you know, like very well. Like if I had just been a little more relaxed, I've never done that since, by the way, I've never gone into a talk where I memorized every word that I wanted to say. And I would never recommend that anyone do that. Unless you like have to for a play or something, you know, <laughs> like just wing it. It's gonna sound a lot better. But we launched there. Michael Arrington, who was the CEO of TechCrunch, seemed to really like have our back during the thing. He was an ally in the sense of he was a fan of Mint.com, which had launched a couple of years before us at, at TechCrunch. He was a fan of Alexa Von Tobler at LearnVest. She'd launched the year before us. I'd seen both of them launch at TechCrunch and I thought, well, this is our path. They've done this. We've got to do this. And so I felt really lucky to be there and we made it to the final round. It was you know, all these prestigious panelists from the big VC firms and tech companies who were on the panel. I remember Chris Sacco was one of them who's been on Shark Tank and wears the flashy cowboy shirts, or at least he used to. And he said, I think this is way too simple for anybody to, to take seriously. And Michael Arrington said, oh, well, so what, you want them to make the website harder to use and look a little crappier, a little more <laughs> like the traditional financial services site, and then you'd like it better? And Viseka said, yes. And I talked to him about this a few years ago. I saw him at a conference and we caught up and I asked him if he remembered it, first of all. And he said, oh yeah, yeah. like." And I know it was a mistake, but i made bigger mistakes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: He's very humble and lovely about it. And we had a good laugh about it. But at the time, it was a legitimate concern. Like nothing was really that, like making investing that simple. In years hence, I think some companies have come along and maybe outsimpled Betterment. Like I look at Acorns or Stash or companies like this who've made, oh, like save $5 a week, we'll round it up or whatever. Like we'll make it really easy. When we looked at those kinds of opportunities and when we looked at those customer bases at Betterment, we often said, we want to be accessible to anyone. And we want to have like no minimum. We're cheaper than them, right? They're charging like $3 a month. Like why wouldn't these customers prefer our service over theirs? It's better service, right? Like I'm biased. I'm obviously like, but those guys did an amazing job of like marketing catchy feature, like a roundup or something like that just appealed to that mass market. And I think made it even more accessible. And so credit to them and for doing that. And like I think of us, I think of Betterment today as kind of this middle market between there's a just beginner investor that's maybe doing a different thing. There's the well-established investor who's already got their investment advisor and likes going to the fancy office or whatever to like have a meeting. And then there's the kind of like 37-year-old who's probably like similar to the person who's coming to Good Eggs and is kind of thinking about it. Maybe I would imagine your average investor has more net worth than the average Betterment investor but not necessarily, right? Like there's overlap for sure between those. And I think that we all probably attract, we both probably attract this person who's like starting to take things seriously and be more intentional, right? Like having kids, like that point where they're starting to think about planning for college and I would like to retire someday and maybe I'd like to not work forever. How do I do that? And I think that sort of middle is probably where we fit best.
1: And you launched Betterman in 2008. I'm curious... I mean, obviously we know the story now and you're a huge success and grown this amazing company, but do you think that having launched in 2008, did that contribute to your success or were you successful despite having launched at that
0: time? I absolutely think that the timing had a lot to do with it. Listen, I think most success in life is luck. And by that, I mean a lot of things. I was born lucky. I recognize my privilege as like a white male being born in America and to loving parents with stable jobs and good schooling and good teachers along the way and like every advantage, right? That's luck. Like I didn't do that, right? And to be in the wealthiest country in the world and like one of the greatest times of prosperity in history. So with all of that, like fortunate context, I think being in 2008, I remember everyone saying, don't start a financial services company now. And I thought, oh, this is a great time to start a financial services company. (laughs) Like fast forward to 2022, right? And I'm advising a lot of folks who are starting financial services companies right now. And it's terrifying to me. And I'm like very transparent with them about that. I'm like, oh boy, I wouldn't, oh, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Oh, I'm teasing because they're like brilliant. And they're like, people are doing much smarter things and like than I ever did, but it's so competitive. And like, whenever somebody starts a company, I'll go and I'll say, I just found the coolest company. I'll now go and tell an investor about it. And the investor will say, Oh, that's a very crowded space. There's like five companies doing that right now. And I'm like, wow, you're right. Like every space is crowded instantly. There's so many people. There's so much capital. It's a really tricky time to start a company. But when we started, as you said, there was no fintech. There were no robo advisors. I wouldn't want to start a robo advisor today. And it's like, I wouldn't start a discount broker today, although like Robinhood went out and did it and they seem to have been pretty successful. So just because I wouldn't do it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But (laughs) I think it's a scary time. And we rode this whole like amazing rise, right? Like it really hasn't, there's been like a 20%, 30% drop a couple of years, but it's been a very good time for markets since, since 2008. And I think that's helped Betterment as well.
1: We'll get back to our conversation with John in just a minute.
3: We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. Now
1: back to our chat with John Stein.
2: So I'm curious, the stock market is something that has been long, well known, people know about it. It's like the first thing people are told to invest in when they get out of college and they start making money. And real estate in the last, I don't know, decade or so has become pretty popular. And now it's gone in the last five years, pretty mainstream. And we see it everywhere. And you can't not talk to somebody and they not, don't know about real estate investing in some form or fashion or have some curiosity about it. Looking back in the history of like stock market investing and those kinds of things, where do you feel like we are with real estate investing? Do you feel like it's very early still where there's still lots of room for growth? Not a lot of people know about it. Do you think it will ever get to a place where the norm is you get out of school, you get out of college, and the first thing you do is start investing in real estate? What are your thoughts around that?
0: I think there's a lot of room to continue to grow in real estate investing. I think the forms of investment are changing and that's going to help make it more and more accessible. I think platforms like yours like Good Eggs are helping to democratize access to interesting real estate investments. I've been spending so I should say I handed over the reins at Betterment at the beginning of last year, beginning of 2021, I hired a CEO. I'm now the the chairman of the board. I I probably spend 10 or 15% of my time still on Betterment things, but I spend 50 to 60% of my time Advising early stage companies, other founders. And then the other 25 or 30%, I'm doing investing and investments. So personally, I have an interest in real estate investing. Like it's a thing that I've been doing myself. And then Professionally, like for the companies I'm advising, some of them are real estate investment platforms, and and I'm talking to Sarah, the CEO of Betterment, and like the team about like how do we get more into alts? How do we give our customers exposure to some of these like newer, interesting asset classes? So I'm bullish on on it as a category. For a long time, we had this debate internally at Betterment about how to give customers real estate exposure, and the REIT market. It was kind of like the only obvious answer. REITs are real estate investment trusts. They're publicly traded investments in companies that invest in real estate, basically. So you're buying the equity of a pool of companies. The downside to investing in REITs is they're very highly correlated to say mid-cap U.S. stocks. They basically trade like a lot of, say, the lower portion of the S&P 500 or so And you have a lot of exposure to that already if you're in equities. Like, there's not a lot of diversification through that REIT vehicle. The kinds of things that y'all do, like private specific placements, like that's a little less, you can get a little bit more diversification, I think, through that. I think there's like a little bit of a different, partly because it's not market traded. And so you're buying things and holding them, you get a bit of a liquidity illiquidity premium from investing in in a private placement or syndication. And partly because I think you're able to find and source the right kinds of investment. You're not as big of a Say machine is the REITs that are out there. I don't know. I'm probably not articulating it very well, but I think they're different types. And so we've looked at how to give folks access to more private placements and things. I think there's some opportunity there.
2: What would you say is the thing that you think is holding real estate from back from becoming something that is very normal and very much the standard? It obviously took stocks to become where it is. It took it a long time to get it to the point where it became the norm and the thing that you did. How far away do you think we're from that? And what do you think it's going to take for that to become the norm? This is something that Annie and I have talked about from the very beginning, and we feel like we're faced with a very big hurdle in front of us where it's been so ingrained in folks that this is the trajectory that you go. You go to school, you get a job, you invest in the stock market, and that's investing as we know it, as the norm, as most people know it. What do you think it's going to take to get it to where real estate becomes something like that?
0: Okay. So I'm going to give you a sort of philosophical, try to be thoughtful answer, even though I haven't (laughs) been very thoughtful and thinking about this question. So over my skis here, but I think that maybe the public markets in equity are efficient because you have Very large companies, what Apple's a $2 trillion company or whatever, right? Like, even if you go a couple of order magnitude below that and you kind of like a $20 billion company, still that's a lot of equity, right? It's a big firm. You can fractionalize that and have a lot of shareholders. And I'm not even talking fractional shares like that you buy for pennies, just like a share of stocks. You can own a claim on like a cash flow and like. Millions of people can own Apple stock and you still have like a meaningful investment for all of those millions of people for most real estate investments, even a large multifamily project. I mean, we're talking about like maybe a $50 million sort of property. not a 20 billion, right? So we're talking two or three orders of magnitude, right? Smaller than even like the small company that I mentioned. Now it's like harder to fractionalize that thing. It's harder to break it up. You might have bigger chunks, you might have fewer, larger investors in order for it to be a meaningful part of their portfolio. In order for them to devote the mental space and time it takes to choose that investment and get a return on that time, They have to deploy a certain amount of capital. So, you've got the individual, it's got to be chunky enough for the individual. You've also got like the regulatory and like supervisory apparatus. So, the SEC. Is out there and can like look at all these public companies. They have publicly like reviewed financials and like that's all like it's hard. Who's got time for that $50 million multifamily unit, right? Like but there's more trust involved. There's more like trusting like the individual syndication or promoter or developer or, or GC or whoever's your manager. You have to kind of like understand and have more relationships. And so that kind of asset class that real estate is, and this is multifamily, this is not get down to single family, like the rental property. Now you're talking like $500,000 for that home, right? They get two orders of magnitude further down. And now you're talking, it's really got to be a single person who's investing that. And maybe they're managing in themselves. It's very hard to syndicate. There are platforms that are trying to do that, right? I'm sure you know some of these folks, like, I don't know, Roofstock comes to mind. Like, I think it's interesting. I think it's early. I think that will grow. But there's just so much data that has to be standardized and formatted and scrutinized, like the process, make that a thing that you can aggregate up and then democratize and send out. So you guys are doing that work. There's other firms like doing pieces of that work. And I think that all of that is takes time in order Mm -hmm. to kind of make these investments in this asset class more accessible. That was my long yeah, trying to be. Thoughtful.
2: Yeah, no, I love that, and I think that that makes perfect sense. And I do see that happening more often now today more than ever. I see other syndicators in the space saying, "Hey, you can come in with as little as five hundred dollars into our syndication," but it does it creates a lot of work on the back end administratively for the sponsors and the operators. When a big part of what we do is having to focus on the performance of the asset itself, so if you're bogged down with administrative stuff dealing with $500 investments here and there, that can become an issue. And there's also the customer support or the investor support that comes along with that as well. that creates a lot of administrative work along with that. So I think when we think about scaling and when we think about growing bigger, it's got to be about how can we build in that support to be able to do that. And that's something that I don't think a lot of us have figured out yet or spent the time to figure out in our space yet anyway. Mm-hmm. So, well, awesome. Thank you for that answer. One other question I did want to ask you was you had mentioned that you spend a part of your time investing in various other asset classes, obviously, you like real estate. What are some other things that you're investing in? I'm curious to pick your brain, what you see coming down the horizon over the coming next couple of years as an asset class that maybe some of our listeners should be looking at and why?
0: Most of my net worth remains invested in betterment. I should be clear about that. And that, as an asset class, has a high correlation to the public equity markets, right? So of all the funds invested in Betterment, I think 70 to 75% are in equities, globally diversified equities, but like a high correlation to US stocks. The other 25 to 30% is in bonds of some sort, could be munis, could be treasuries, something like that, but cash. So in my personal investing, because I have this like one concentrated bet with a high beta to the US stock market, I'm doing like not that much stock investing, right? What I am doing is not necessarily what I would recommend for a person who doesn't already have 80 plus percent of their money and like a highly stock correlated investment. So I'm trying to diversify and I'm thinking, well, real estate's great. It's got a good yield. There's no yield in bonds. I feel like if there is inflation, then my rents will go up. Hospitality has the same dynamic. I feel like it'll keep pace with inflation. Cap rates are low, right? Like relative to long-term averages, which makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I think... It's still better than I'd get out of buying, I don't know, tips or like if I'm looking for yield, that's kind of like the best thing out there. So I've done some of that. I've got a company that I have invested in that I'm excited about. Have you heard, I'm sure y'all are familiar with like the iBuyer world, these folks who allow you to say, buy your next home before you sell your current home, they'll give you like a 45-day financing so you can put in a cash offer, right? There's cash offer folks, there's iBuyers, there's buy before you sell, slightly different uses of similar concept. Those companies that provide that kind of short-term financing need capital, right? It's not a mortgage, right? They're giving capital to buy a home. It's real estate backed. But it's not a mortgage, so banks can't do it. So who does that? So I've got a company that I work with called Setpoint. It's doing that, and so I'm an investor and an advisor. That's like I think that's just great. I think that's an interesting asset, It's real estate backed, but and higher yield than a mortgage. Another fund I love is when a developer in New York City stops work or something, and like a building is just like left hanging out, and like nothing is happening. All of a sudden, like sort of the debt starts accruing on those buildings. And like a friend of mine from business school that goes and buys the debt on those buildings and then like works it out with the developer to basically get them to come and like pay off their back debt. Or sell the building, and so it's like another sort of like real estate secured. Most of these are like developers who have multiple buildings in in, in Manhattan and or around, and it's all these like sort of court systems workings. It's like <laughs> it's like really like the thing you're investing in there, but it also feels like a good asset class, especially if you like I. I'm a little bit worried about the sort of like overall valuations. And even though we've seen a bit of a correction, I remain concerned about where the market is. And so like looking for those opportunities on the sort of downside and that offers downside protection, I think are interesting. Those are some of the things I'm keen on right now.
2: And on that note, I'm going to ask you really quickly to pull out your crystal ball and tell us where do you think things are headed? It's like you said, it's a crazy time right now. If you asked me five years ago, if we would be where we are today, I don't know that I would have been able to guess that we would be here. (laughs) I'm not a believer of timing the market. We've always looked at deals as deal by deal basis. And if the deal makes sense, it's a great deal. It doesn't matter where we're at. And I still believe that. But that being said, like you alluded to earlier, it's a crazy time right now. And so where do you think we're headed in the next year or two? Specifically also would love to hear your thoughts around real estate. If you think real estate's going, what do you think is going to happen? What do you kind of foresee?
0: First of all, I don't have a crystal ball either. And just feel like I need to say it because my sort of whole brand is built on not timing the market and <laughs> just, you know, right. forget, stay invested. And mm-hmm. so I agree. However, I'll also acknowledge there's this very human side to it that it's hard to do that. Like probably most of our customers and like most humans have a hard time Staying the course when I see like market volatility, right? Like that's part of the reason I started at Betterment was I wanted to help people kind of deal with this thing that I feel, which is like oh, I want to time the market, you know, and like I end up doing it badly if when I do try to time the market. So all of that said, I tend to look at the kind of like if I take the long view and I see that in the equity market, say the price earnings ratios are at the high levels of the historic bands, right? I don't know if we're at 26X like price over earnings or 28 or 30, it depends on how you cut the data and this and that, but it's high relative to say a long-term mean of more like 16X, right? Like that you might expect. And sometimes it goes as low as 10X, right? If you look back at like depression era times, right? So we could be a two and a half or three X above the lows, meaning stocks could fall, I don't know, like they could fall none. They could fall 20%. They could fall 60%, right? Like you could see a big correction. And I just don't see the upside case to me, right? When valuations are that high is inflation, question mark. It's like like maybe, you know, valuations are high because we all expect inflation to go up and earnings therefore will accelerate. And so like these valuations will just be normal and it'll be fine. There won't be a correction, just the value of your, your money will erode a bit and that'll be fine. The US government has a lot of incentive to create that inflationary environment because there's so much debt It makes a lot of sense for them to, rather than have to pay it off with very high interest rates, to just kind of inflate it away by printing some money. And I think I agree with you in that you just kind of have to kind of keep going and stay the course in all market environments. If the thing you do is go and find great real estate investments or great value stock investments or whatever that thing is you do, you can do that in any environment. The multiples may change, the background will shift. But it's very hard to call these macro factors. I think that we like to say when we talk about betterment is control all the things that you can and don't worry about the things that you can't. We sort of like force rank all the things that people can control. You can control how much money you deposit. You can control whether you're well-diversified. You can control thinking about like your money in the right buckets. You can control your taxes. So do all of that stuff. The thing that you can't control is like, what will the inflation rate be in 2027? It's impossible to know. There's all these external factors and geopolitics and things that actually have a lot They have a much bigger bearing on things than we like to think that we do.
2: Yeah. Well, I like your crystal ball answer. (laughs) I think that there's a lot of, I think the straight answer is, look, we don't know what's going to happen and nobody does. And you look at what's happening, obviously, and you try to find the opportunities that make sense for you and you keep moving forward. And so I love that. All right. Well, one of the last questions before we move into the Life and Money Show Spotlight round that I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you recently stepped down as CEO at Betterment. And I'm curious, what went into to that decision? And how did you know that it was time for you to step down? And how do you feel now? It's been a year and a half. Sounds like things are going well. Do you feel confident that that was the right decision?
0: <laughs> so these are always complicated things. I'd say I told you earlier in the podcast about in the interview about how I initially had this business getting to like 100 million in assets and like it was like <laughs> a little thing. And at some point along the way Like I never lost sight of that. I just kept growing bigger and kept growing bigger. And I would tell myself, and I felt very genuinely for many years, like I have the best Mm -hmm. job in the world. I get to hire my team. I get to build the business that I want with like the purpose and intention that I want and the culture that I want. And gosh, this is a lucky thing to get to do this. And as I started having like my family and as I started kind of doing more let's say, routine board reporting, financial reporting, annual planning, like that kind of stuff. Like, as I got further and further away from just being with the team, betterment grew to what today were 400 and some people. And like, really, I tried very hard to know everyone's name to know people, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Lunch with everyone. And like, just like you get to a scale where you can't do that anymore. Like, and, and I yeah. sort of felt that felt that pulling away and more of the job was like the financial. Okay. Like, let's do this. Let's do that. Like it became harder for me to say, like, this is like my favorite thing and the best job in the world. And I, <laughs> that's a hard conversation to like have with anyone. Cause you can't like go to your team yeah. hired and who rely on you and, and say, mm-hmm. Oh, guess what? Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not really feeling this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, it's a hard thing to go to the board and talk about because like the board yeah. invests in you and like, they just put right. a bunch of money in. It's raised 200 to $300 million. It's like some large amount of equ- equity capital over the years. You can't go to them and be like, Hey, yeah. find someone else to manage this money mm-hmm. for you. So it was a gradual thing. And it was like a conversation over years, first in whispers and then sort of in like, all right, mm-hmm. like I think this might be the time I felt very lucky to meet Sarah when I did. I met her mm-hmm. and we were looking for a COO or a CRO. And, and I was really thinking really? about how to build out my team. This is a longer answer than you bargained for. But I was like, "Yeah, no, I, I like, love it. She's amazing. She ran Viacom. She was the COO at Viacom before coming to Betterment. She started like Spongebob and did a bunch of things at Nickelodeon. Like did all this cool stuff and managed mm-hmm. a 22,000 person organization, like a lot bigger things. Oh, than wow. And just like very professional and impressive. And And I thought, wow, we'd be lucky to work with her. And as I, as we went, this was in the pandemic year, this was like 2020 that I met her and I just, everything kind of came together. I thought this is actually a perfect time to like Mm -hmm. actually make her the CEO and like do this transition. It's going to be easy. We're remote. I like that about it. Like Mm -hmm. I I had her do like our annual planning. I brought her in and like, she was in every meeting with me. And it was like this Mm -hmm. fun thing where like, I knew that she was never meeting, but not everyone knew that she was never meeting, you know? So Uh (laughs) so kind of everything came together. And also I'd moved up to Pound Ridge. Like I was no longer living in the city. We were remote. I was like doing this family thing here. And I was with my family for dinner every night for the first time in years and in a decade. And I realized that I hadn't been doing that before. I always thought I was the person who was was going to be with my dinner. I was going to have dinner with my family every night. Like I just like took that for granted. Like that's what I did as a kid. That's what my parents did as a kid. And I thought, of course that's me. But it took actually the pandemic for me to realize that I hadn't been doing that and that I loved it. And so a lot of factors, that's why I say it's complicated. But like all of these things were playing into my mind and I couldn't be happier with how how it's turned out. I think Sarah's fantastic. I think she's leading the company well with purpose with the mission always at the forefront of her mm-hmm. mind She like i don't have to like remind her you know, I have to say, uh-huh. like, what about this? And she says, well, John, like, that would be against our whole core value proposition. We can't. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm so glad you're doing this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. That's so great. Well, congratulations on all of that. And, you know, it's nice to hear sometimes that good things come out of this pandemic that we're still in for all of these years rolling into our third year of this, which I cannot believe, but there's certainly for many, a lot of good things that have come out of this. And so awesome that you get to spend time with your kids more. And have dinners and do fun stuff. I think you mentioned you built an ice rink in your backyard, which is so cool. I don't even know how to do that. The coldest it gets here is like 42 in San Francisco. So, but yeah, that's so fun. That's awesome, which is one all what thing we're we all We
0: have about. over you here in the East Coast, so you don't get in the Bay Area. The one thing.
2: Totally. <laughs> so. Yeah. Absolutely. We have to drive like three or four hours to get to all of that. So yeah. Nice. So fun. Well, it's so much a part of what we do at Good Egg and why we do what, why Annie and I do what we do is all about spending, being able to spend more time with the people that we care about and do the things that we love and do the things that are impactful and meaningful for others as well. So with that being said, we're going to roll into our life and money show spotlight round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now, which we've already talked about, but maybe some other things that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design?
0: A thing that I have always done and that I continue now is invest in my community. So in starting Betterment, we talked early on about like being intentional. And I've always been intentional about like pursuing happiness. And at Betterment, That was our number one value. We wrote down our seven, five values that then became our seven values. And number one has always been pursue happiness. And that means slightly different things to different people, but it's about kind of pursuing to me something that's important and bigger than you and finding happiness along the way if you're so lucky, right? I'm a believer in kind of like a set point of happiness, but we can do kind of things to kind of like continue to push that that set point up or at least make the most of it. Flow, physical activity, like lots of things get us there. But I think there's a lot of things that cluster around community. So your connection to people, the way that you cooperate, the way that you show appreciation, shared experiences with others, family, like all of those things have a big role in happiness. And so, at betterment, that was a big part of our cultures, is incredibly important to me. And now that I have more time, I'm finding fun in advising these other companies that I work with about their cultures. And in investing in my Pound Ridge community, like I helped to hire the school principal here. I'm the den leader in the Cub Scout pack. I'm enjoying all of those kinds of community things here too.
2: That's so awesome. I love that. I'm curious, how do you think having that kind of culture within Betterment has shaped Betterment's success?
0: I think it's been a huge part of our success. When people ask, I think culture is so big. When people ask, what is your sort of like competitive advantage? I think ultimately over the long term, If you don't have, say, network effects or a monopoly, like a natural monopoly, it all comes back to culture. It all comes back to team. Like that is the thing that you can do to create sustainable advantage. And I think- People are at Betterment for a a variety of reasons, but one that is common among almost everyone there is this like passion for like our purpose, our passion Mm -hmm. for like doing right by the customer, rep showing up and doing the right thing. And that makes it a a great place to be. I have this metaphor of culture I'll share with you just briefly that I like to, it's like a... House is the metaphor and mm-hmm. the foundation is the values. It's the stuff that you never see. It's kind of below the ground. It's super important. You better know it's down there, but you don't necessarily talk about the values all the time. Then there's like the team meeting and like the Friday show and tell and or the happy hour or the retreats that you do or the OKRs, objectives and key results that you set. All of that like infrastructure is the furniture is the things that you see everywhere when you look around and you think of as like the culture, like that's the important stuff. That's super important and very visible. But the most important thing, the thing that makes a house a home, the thing that makes the place, the people make the place, right? So it's the people that you hire that really make it a place you want to be, make it great so that's people are everything
2: yes that's so awesome i love hearing that annie and i have grown in size quite a bit over last year in 2021 and we put a lot of effort and time into making sure that we are finding the right people that are a good fit and it's so important to us culture is a big thing for us too at good egg and behind closed doors we get to do a lot of fun stuff with everyone on the team as well so i love all of that all right second question is around others life and money so so what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now?
0: For the companies I'm advising these days, I spend time on two things. I'm talking about product strategy and like how do we make it better? Like how do we make this thing, how do we get more product market fit? That's one. And then the other is people and culture for all of these early stage companies. As I think for so many people who are thinking about starting a business or thinking about how do I become more intentional about using my time? The number one error I see is not hiring people. I'm always like, you just need to hire a person. They're like, oh, I have all these problems and I don't know how to do this. I'm like, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to hire a person to do that. Now that's very easy to say for companies that are like venture funded and can like, maybe they can go raise more. Yeah, sure, hire. But like, it sounds like a little ridiculous to say that to somebody who doesn't have all of those things. But what I mean is, are there ways that you can delegate work do you have to focus on doing all the things all the time i mean i do this myself i'm as guilty of it as anyone like maybe you can hear it in the way i talk i tend to be like very add focus on a thing and then like i'll sort of half finish it and then i'm going to go do the other thing i'm going to do that for a little bit and if you can just kind of like get some of those things off your plate And hire and delegate them away. Maybe it means hiring a money manager. Maybe like to some people, that's an expense they can't bear and they want to do it themselves. And to other people, it's a way of saving time and delegating something. Maybe it means you get it. (laughs) That's my advice is to try to get some things off your plate so you can make some time, focus on the really important stuff.
2: Right. Couldn't agree more. The feedback that I always get is it's like the chicken or the egg thing, right? It's like, I have to help our our coaching clients understand that it's an investment, right? Towards freeing up their time so that they can grow the business. It's easier said than done. Just like you said, like, well, it's easy for you to say, Julie, you guys just raised X amount of dollars and you guys are growing at warp speed. And, but I love that. I think it's so true because I think when you can delegate and stay in your zone of genius, that's really how you're able to help your business grow in leaps and bounds. All right. Well, last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place?
0: I've found this new interest that's really aligned with some of our conversations around real estate and community. It kind of lines up with both of those, like right here in Pound Ridge. So I've just recently started working with the Pound Ridge Land Conservancy. And I'm hoping that that's a relationship that grows. I've done some like volunteering with them and I've started attending the board meetings and kind of like I'm getting into... They have easements on 5% of our town, which is a lot of acres. It's like, I don't know, 500 acres or something like that. And we're protecting it. There's pollinator pathways across it. There's trails in a few of them. So like people can go and enjoy them. We're connecting them to each other. And in Westchester, the county where we live, I think Pound Ridge has like the most open space. And we're just trying to preserve that for future generations, really forever. That's an exciting mission and and one that I can kind of get around
1: yeah, I think that speaks so much to everything that we've talked about here today, especially the pursuing that happiness, right? Not just for yourself, but making that impact for others and being part of something that's bigger than yourself and creating a legacy for future generations. So that's phenomenal. And John, I know we've talked about a lot, but there's so much more to learn. So share with our listeners if they wanted to learn more about all that you're up to or all that Betterment's up to, what's the best place? that they can go?
0: So for anything Betterment related, uh, betterment.com, you'll have your questions answered there. And for me, I'm at John Stein on Twitter, probably DM me is the easiest way to get in touch.
1: Fantastic. John Stein, founder and chairman of Betterment. John, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing so openly of your story and your insights.
0: Pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks so much. And congrats on your success and growth. It's really awesome to watch.
1: You've been listening to the Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.